Hey, thanks for listening. This is question and answer session number three. So something new, we started on the podcast, taking listeners' questions, Patreon questions, and answering them. So if you have a question, you can swing over to theafterburnpodcast.com. Again, that's theafterburnpodcast.com. And you can email us a question and have a chance for it to be answered. If you're looking to support the show, you can swing over to patreon.com, search for the Afterburn Podcast. You can support the show for as little as $2 a month. All that helps the show grow. With that being said, let's get into some Q&A for the Afterburn Podcast. All right, this is uh, coming from some Patreon supporters. First question is, was curious just how fast the F-15 and the F-16 could get to 35,000 feet in an unrestricted climb. So interesting question. I was fortunate enough to be the demo pilot and that meant I got to fly a clean block 50 quite a bit, which was awesome. I equated just being a rocket with two little wings strapped to it. So a lot of, a lot of good times in that I did a lot of unrestricted climbs. So I explored the space a little bit. I don't know if there's a published uh, maximum climb rate per minute for the F-16 nor the F-15. There probably is in some obscure time to climb record. But um, I think what I have seen from the F-16, it's around 60,000 feet per minute. The F-15, somewhere around 30 to 40,000 feet per minute. I could be wrong. I'm not an expert. But what I can say is from my real life experience in a clean block 50 on a nice cool day, uh, the most air traffic controls allow me to climb is up to 25,000 feet unrestricted. And I was able to make that fairly quickly. But by the time you're reaching that altitude, your airspeed is really starting to drop off. So the higher you get, uh, it just gets a little bit tougher to just maintain that really steep climb rate. So the demo profile has a 300 feet to 15,000 feet climb in there, 90 degrees nose high. I can attest, and I've seen it with my own eyes, that climbing straight up on a cold day, the F-16 will still continue to accelerate, which is pretty impressive in my book. So I don't know if that really answers your question. Needless to say, both are probably pretty impressive. Both come with a lot of horsepower, and it's pretty cool. All right, moving on. Uh, next, uh, again, from another Patreon supporter, Jeanette. How often did you run into other pilots or air crew that had crossed over from another job like 13 November? So the Air Force has Air Force Specialty Codes, AFSC. 13 November is one for nuclear officers, missileers, somewhere in that career field. I can say it's not uncommon. It's not super common. The challenge is once you become an Air Force officer and you're trained into a certain job, you have to compete in a much smaller and much more competitive pool in order to go to pilot training or navigator training once you're in. So the vast majority of people that are walking into the Air Force as pilots and navigators and other rated career fields, they have already, that is their first assignment. They've already competed for it and the vast majority fill those slots. Now each year, depending on the needs of the Air Force, they'll hold rated boards. So if you are an intelligence officer, if you're a communications officer, any kind of officer, you can compete. But again, it might only be for 50 slots. You're competing Air Force-wide. 
versus if you're competing for a pilot training slot out of the Air Force Academy or ROTC, there might be a thousand pilot training slots. and The pool is just a little bit bigger. I don't know what the exact odds are. So needless to say, again, it's not super uncommon to cross over and definitely had lots of exposure to people who had previous assignments doing other things in the Air Force prior to becoming a pilot. I don't know though if I've ever met anyone that was a 13 November. So, all right, um, moving along here, got a question from South Africa. This ties back to episodes number 23 and 24 from Mezzer's Mishap. So if you haven't listened to those, I encourage you to go back and listen. Uh, the first episode, number 23, I break down the accident investigation board that the Air Force released as far as the cause and causes of his mishap. And then number 24, Bender, who's an F-16 instructor pilot and evaluator, now an F-35 pilot, he joined me and we kind of added some context around that story, more so than you can do in, in those type of reports. So if you haven't listened to number 23 or number 24, I encourage you to go back and listen because out of it, um, again, this it ends in absolute tragedy. There's no way around it. And there's some things that could have been done differently. Not saying that I would have done anything differently. And I think we attest to those in those episodes. But nonetheless, bad things happen. So out of that comes the question about controlled ejection, which I talked to in the last Q&A as well. So Mezzer did not do a controlled ejection. He ejected when his aircraft was departing controlled flight uh, during the landing phase. His chute didn't open and he was killed in that mishap. So what would a controlled ejection look like? What are the parameters for it? And what would constitute doing a controlled ejection? So it depends. That's the standard fire pilot answer. And in Mezzer's case, his scenario would have warranted talking to Lockheed Martin if time and conditions permitted, which the Accident Investigation Board found. I don't necessarily think that I would have called them based upon just knowing what I know. Not the right answer, but needless to say, the engineers at Lockheed would have recommended a controlled ejection. That is based upon the fact that the configuration of the F-16 he was flying was in an unknown or unsafe configuration based on the damage or unknown damage to his aircraft. So every Air Force base has a controlled ejection area. I'd say every Air Force base that has fighters with ejection seats has a controlled ejection area. And that is going to be an un unpopulated area that is known to pilots as an in-flight guide. It's on the front page, probably the in-flight guide, depending on what base it's at. And it could be a particular piece of airspace. It could be a radial and a DME on a heading. But basically, if you fly to that point and you eject, you know there's a low probability that your aircraft is going to impact and do harm to anyone or anything on the ground. So at Shaw Air Force Base, there's Poinsett Range, which is R6002, Restricted Area 6002. It sits about five miles south of the base. And it's a postage stamp as far as a fighter pilot goes but it's a piece of airspace that you'll flow to and you'll be flowing southbound and eject. So the min controlled ejection altitude is 2000 feet AGL and F-16 and most planes for that matter. Uncontrolled 6,000 feet. And again, the difference between those two is pretty simple. If you have control of the aircraft, meaning you don't have a flight control malfunction, you're in a spin or something like that, the airplane is still flyable, but you know you can't safely land it, you fall in the controlled category. If you're in a flat spin out to sea like Goose and Maverick, once you see 6,000 feet above ground level on the altimeter, that's when you need to eject in order to ensure that you have the proper clearances. 
And there's again, no guarantee that you'll be within the parameters of the seat or the envelope of the seat when, when you pull that handle, that's gonna increase your probability of success. So in Messer's case, had he done a controlled ejection, he most likely would have survived. That's at least what everyone is surmising from that report. Some hurdles he had to overcome. When he pulled that ejection handle, he had 3.67 seconds to recognize that his chute was not automatically deploying. He was not getting man seat separation from his seat. There is a handle by your right thigh in the F-16 that you have to reach down and pull to separate, manually separate from the seat and then get a parachute. There is no way he had a fighting chance of doing that. I don't know any human being that if you put them in that scenario with all the factors he had going on at night, pulling the ejection handle, the G-forces, the disorientation, and then recognizing that the chute didn't open and pulling the handle, impossible. However, had he flown out to points at range and done a controlled ejection, he would have had the opportunity to at least most likely recognize that his chute had not deployed. Now, if he had been at that minimum altitude of 2,000 feet, like, I, I don't know, never been through an ejection, I think it'd still be very challenging to recognize the fact that your chute had not deployed at night after you just experienced 10, 15 Gs riding up the rails, opening shock. Again, if you think about it, if, you, if you've slowed down in an F-16, you're going 200 knots and you pull the ejection handle, you're standing in a hurricane when you come up those rails as you're experiencing, again, 15 Gs getting pushed out of the seat, if not more than that. So a lot going against him. The report noted uh, Tulsa Air National Guard F-16, an instructor pilot with almost 4,000 hours, I think is what it had. It's a very seasoned, very experienced fighter pilot. He had the same issue with his seat that Meser did. He pulled the handle at altitude, and it still took him almost five seconds to realize that his seat was not get, getting the opening shock, not getting that initial separation, so he had to pull the manual override handle. Um, so, yeah, again, that's a lot on the controlled ejection Sequence, again, it depends on the scenario, but ultimately if your aircraft is on a safe and landable configuration and the checklist has a table to kind of go over, hey, these are known configurations that are different, but are landable. And these over here in this column where you don't want to be are known configurations that if you try to land in, you will not survive, most likely. All right, and then moving on, got, uh, hey, Rain, I've been enjoying your YouTube in cockpit videos. Try to put more up there. Recently, I wanted to ask you, what is it that made you want to be a Viper demo pilot? There are a lot of F-16 pilots, but I'm guessing not many take the next step. What drew you to that? What was the process of, and preparation like to get the application strong? And what was the selection process like? All right, so I've said it in a couple of interviews that I've been a guest on is I never joined the Air Force to be a demo pilot. It just something that happened. It all goes back to right place, right time with the right qualifications. And I think that's a big, big takeaway. It's not something I ever considered. And the first time I actually considered it was 2016 and Shaw Air Force Base had an air show. Thunderbirds were there. The F-16 demo team was there. The Canadian Hornet demo team was there. And I actually was a narrator for air power demos. So we had a bunch of F-16s go up and kind of running through the role of seed, suppression of enemy air defenses, and I was narrating that for the audience. And that was kind of my first exposure to air shows in that capacity. I talked to a friend who was actually on the Thunderbirds and got a little bit more 
of a clue as far as what demos, what air show life was like. And about two weeks later, again, right place, right time, a call went out for the next F-16 demo pilot at Shaw. I threw my name in the hat and I was fortunate to select, or be selected to do that. So for those who don't know, the Air Force has four single ship demo teams and then they have the Thunderbirds. So Thunderbirds fly F-16s, formation of six jets flying close together, precision. It's great. The single ship demo teams are there to kind of fill the gap where the Thunderbirds can't necessarily be because Thunderbirds can't be there every single weekend at every single air show. So there's an F-22 team, an F-35 team, an F-16 team, and an A-10 team. Sequestration, which shut the government back da- government down in 2012, 2013. All the demo teams went away. There used to be two of each for the most part. Um, and when things started moving again, Air Force got a little bit more money and brought demo teams back. They brought back the F-22, and then they brought back the F-16, and then they brought the A-10 team as a heritage flight. So part of the single ship demo is the Air Force flight. Air Force Heritage Flight Foundation, which is honestly the best part, in my opinion, where you get to pair up with warbirds after you fly a demo at air shows and showcase American air power. It's pretty cool. Flying three feet from the wing of a priceless warbird, uh, you really can't beat that. But as far as the selection process went, again, put name in the hat. There is a resume I had to put forward, kind of an application of why I wanted to do it, and then having to meet with leadership at the base. So Met with the operations group commander and then eventually the wing commander. Those are the two pilots on the base who own everything. Wing commander being the person who owns everything at the base. uh, And that's who hired me to be the next demo pilot. The Raptor is a little bit different. They actually solicit across the entire F-22 pilot force because they share F-22s across the Air Force to go and do air shows versus F-16 and F, or sorry, the A-10 demo teams have their jets that come from that base and they're dedicated assets to the demo teams. So slightly different. As far as getting your application strong, again, I I think this is one of those things that you initially don't really prepare for. It's not, again, I didn't go out there with a focus to be a demo pilot, right? I joined the Air Force to go out there and go to war and do things. Doing all those was the prerequisite, right? It was unbeknownst to me, but getting that experience and doing different things built a strong enough resume to go out there and then and apply to be the demo pilot and be able to do it. So anyone can be a demo pilot flying the demo. I always say is an easy thing. 99% of demo or F-16 pilots can fly it. It's just doing something different. You're just doing high G low to the ground. It's not complex. It's not a lot of thinking involved. Let's say maybe for me, it's a lot of thinking involved, but for most people, it wouldn't be that challenging. It's just high G. And then for preparing for it, it's it's a rather lengthy upgrade process just because you have to do so many sorties and get so many checkouts at various levels. The fact that it's high G can be exhausting. So a lot of squats, a lot of a lot of deadlifts, and a lot of cardio is how you prepare for that. All right. With that being said, that wraps up QA number three. If you have a question, again, theafterburnpodcast.com. You can hit the email us button and drop your question. Or if you want to support the podcast, you can swing over to patreon.com and support the podcast that way and get your questions answered.